Welcome to the Assembly of Yahweh Sermon Podcast. We're so glad you're here. For more information, you can visit hallelujah.org or download the AOI app on Apple or Google Play. Today's topic I'd like to bring is the worship of Yeshua. I'd like to begin with by describing or answering the question, what is worship? And then go on to ask, should we worship Yeshua? And if so, how do we properly do this? Well, to begin with, to define worship, the Merriam-Webster.com dictionary defines worship as to honor or show reverence for as a divine being or supernatural power. Second definition, to regard with great or extravagant respect, honor, or devotion. So that's the, what we find in the English dictionary. What about the Hebrew and Greek words from which the word worship is translated in the Bible? An understanding of these gives greater enlightenment to what is considered worship in Scripture. Most occurrences of the word worship in the older writings, commonly called the Old Testament, are from the Hebrew word shechah. Strong's Dictionary defines this word as to depress, that is prostrate, especially reflexively in homage to royalty or Yahweh. And in the King James Version, it has been translated by different English words, such as bow down, crouch, fall down, humbly beseech, do obeisance, do reverence, make to stoop, and worship. Most occurrences of the word worship in the newer writings, commonly called the New Testament, are from the Greek word proskuneo. Strong's Dictionary defines this word as to fawn or crouch, that is to literally or figuratively prostrate oneself in, re- in homage, do reverence, do reverence to, adore. And so note the similarity here between prostrating in homage that is common to both Shekhah and proskuneo. And so we find a good basis in Scripture there for drawing some, some understanding on what worship is according to Scripture. To go along with that, I have some examples of worship in Scripture. Let's look at Genesis 22.5. Feel free to follow along with me. As I say, I don't have the uh, slides to display the verses today. So I'm going to uh, try to turn in my Bible and give you time to follow along if you wish. But in Genesis 22.5, Abraham and Isaac prepared to worship Yahweh. And this is what it says. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship. That is the Hebrew word shekah. And we will come back to you. In context, of course, this verse refers to worshiping Yahweh. That's what they were going to do. Giving Yahweh the worship that only He is due as the supreme being, the only deity. 
However, we'll look at some more scriptures. As the following scriptures demonstrate, worship or honor and respect can also be rendered to human beings in accordance with their status. And I want to emphasize that, in accordance with their status, which is not as deity. For example, let's look at Genesis 23.7, very close to the reference we just saw. Genesis 23.7 says, Then Abraham stood up and bowed, Shekah, himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. So here we see that Abraham showed respect to the sons of Heth, but he certainly did not worship them as Yahweh. And yet it's interesting that that we find that same Hebrew word in the text, Shekah. And so we see that different ones are worshiped according to their status. Yahweh is the only one due to be worshiped as deity, but other human beings can be shown honor, respect. You could even call it worship. Uh, Now, in our Western mindset, we typically reserve the word worship for Yahweh, but when we see the word shakah and the word proskuneo and how these words are used in Scripture, we can see that there's more latitude there than only worship to Yahweh. But once again, with the caveat that it's only due to the person's status that this honor or respect or worship is being shown. Next, let's look at an example that involved Joseph and his brothers, Genesis 43, 28. Genesis 43, 28. And they answered, Your servant, our father. So here, here are Joseph's brothers talking to him. They answered, Your servant, our father, is in good health. He wanted to know about Jacob, his dad. And uh, it said, Your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated, our Shekah, themselves. So here we find that Joseph's brothers gave honor and respect to Joseph as the ruler of the land, but they did not worship him as Yahweh. Have another example involving Moses over here in the next book, Exodus chapter 18, verse 7. Exodus chapter 18, verse 7. It says, So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, or Shekah, and kissed him. And they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. And so here we find that Moses gave honor and respect to his father-in-law, but he did not worship him as Yahweh. And as an aside, I find it very interesting, too, that the last uh, sentence in that verse says, They asked each other about their well-being. And I like that. It reminds me of how that when we converse with each other, sometimes we ask each other, well, how are you doing? Uh, Lots of times, maybe that seems more surface than it really should. But it's a, uh, like I say, it's, I, I I think it means a lot. 
it struck a chord with me when I read this verse that they asked each other about their well-being, and, I, and then I remembered that we oftentimes do that to each other. So Moses gave honor and respect to his father-in-law. I have one more example, and this is where David bowed before King Saul. Let's look at 1 Samuel 24, verse 8. First Samuel 24, 8. David also arose afterward, went out of the cave, and called out to Saul, saying, My master the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down, or shakah. So David here showed great respect and honor, or worship, shakah, to King Saul, but he did not worship him as Yahweh. And so with that last example, now I want to come to further talking about worship according to status. And remember that my topic today is the worship of Yeshua. And I want to turn to Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. We hopefully all certainly should know that we should worship Yahweh, worship Him as the Almighty, But here in Revelation 5, verses 9 through 13, let's look at worship according to status. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to Yahweh by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our El, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. So the context of Revelation 5 emphasizes worship to the Lamb as to the one who was slain. We saw that in verses 9 and 12. In contrast... The one who has never been slain is the eternal Yahweh Almighty. That's part of the definition of eternal. Yahweh has always been and he always will be. Never was his life interrupted by a span of three days and three nights of death as the Messiah's was. Never was Yahweh born as the Messiah was. And so, but once again, we see here an emphasis on worship to the Lamb as to the one that was slain. Once again, worship according to status. So each one, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, each is worshiped according to their respective status. And numerous scriptures verify of Yeshua's subordinate status to his father Yahweh. For example, let's look at John 14, 28. 
John 14, 28 says, You have heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said, I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And so the the key focal point there in that verse for this topic, Yeshua testified, my Father is greater than I. Once again, the Father has higher status than what the Messiah does. Also in John 17, 3, In John 17, 3, during Yeshua's prayer to Yahweh, his Father, he made this remark, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true Elohim, and Yahshua Messiah, whom you have sent. And so he called his Father the only true Elohim, and then he said that they may know him and Yeshua Messiah, whom he sent. So rendering worship according to proper status is important so that we don't become confused about who is who. This is also, by the way, why it is important to maintain a clear difference between Yahweh and Yeshua and their respective positions in our songs of worship. I want to give another example turning back here to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 20. First Chronicles 29:20. Then David said to all the assembly, "Now bless Yahweh your Elohim." So all the assembly blessed Yahweh Elohim of their fathers and bowed their heads and prostrated, Shekah, prostrated themselves before Yahweh and the king. Now I'm reading my quotes out of the New King James Version as I normally do. It says they prostrated themselves before Yahweh and the king. The King James Version translate, translates the word shakah as worshiped in this verse. It says they worshiped Yahweh and the king. So the assembly worshiped, or shakah, Yahweh and the king. And of course, this was each according to their respective status. They honored Yahweh as the Almighty who He is, and then they paid homage to the king for the respective position that he was in. And so they prostrated themselves or worshiped before Yahweh and the king. Worship according to status. We can see more about worship to Yahweh as our creator if we turn back to the book of Revelation. Look at chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. Part of worshiping Yahweh according to his status is to recognize and worship him as our creator. Let's notice this here in Revelation 4, verses 8 through 11. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Yahweh El Shaddai, who was and is and is to come. 
Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Yahweh, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created." And so, again, here we see an acknowledgement and worship of Yahweh as the Creator. He's unmistakably identified here uh, by these terms, Yahweh El Shaddai, uh, Yahweh, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things. Let's also look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. And by the way, I might mention while you're turning there that in Revelation 4.8 where I translated the terms there and I put Yahweh El Shaddai, what appears in the New King James Version and probably in most of the versions, in the English versions, it says, quote, Lord God Almighty, unquote. But that's one reason that we can be sure who it's talking about. Who is that? That is Yahweh. It is Yahweh El Shaddai. So now going to 1 Corinthians 15.33, let's look at the fact that Yeshua does reign, except His reign is under Yahweh. So once again, there is a respective order here. Let's notice this in 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm sorry, I directed you to the wrong verse. It's not verse 33. We need to look at verses 24 through 28. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28. Then comes the end when he, speaking of Yeshua, delivers the kingdom to Yahweh the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. And let's pause here. I want to make just a couple of comments about this. Note this exception to the rule. All things are put under Yeshua, but clearly Yahweh is not put under Yeshua. Instead, Yahweh reigns over all. And so then picking up with verse 28 to finish the quote, it says, Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that Yahweh may be all in all. That Yahweh may be all in all. Again, this shows the importance of recognizing and worshiping each according to their respective status. Let's go on now to consider who is Yeshua? Who is Yeshua? As already established, we should worship Yeshua according to his status. 
But who is he? Many wonderful characteristics describe Yeshua and his position. How important is he? Incredibly important. He is, for one, the Messiah. Yeshua asked his disciples this question, who do you say that I am? The answer that he is the Messiah, that is the anointed of Yahweh, is significant. Let's look at the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 through 17. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17. When Yeshua came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living Elohim. Yeshua answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so Yeshua strongly endorsed Peter's response. Notice the distinction in this response. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living Elohim. Not you are Elohim the Son, and not you are the Son who is Elohim, but you are the son of the living Elohim. We can also compare the accounts of Mark and Luke, turning to Mark chapter 8, verse 29. Mark chapter 8, 29. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Messiah. He just flat out said, you are the Messiah. Let's also look at Luke 9.20. Luke 9.20. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, the Messiah of Elohim. Not the Messiah who is Elohim, but the Messiah of Elohim. Once again, Messiah means anointed. If he's anointed, he had to be anointed by somebody. Who was he anointed by? He was anointed by his father, Yahweh. Yeshua is also our mediator a very important position. He mediates between Yahweh Elohim and us. Let's look at 1 Timothy 2.5. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one El and one mediator between El and men the man, Messiah Yeshua. As a mediator, Yeshua occupies a vital role in our path to right standing with Yahweh. Note, notice the specific positions mentioned here. 
L, there's one L. L is theos in the Greek text, which is singular. There is one L, one singular L. And then there's one mediator between L and men, the man, Messiah Yeshua. Man in the Greek text is anthropos, and it means a human being. From anthropos comes the word anthropology in our language, which is the study of human beings. Anthropos clearly defines the man, Messiah Yeshua, as a human being. Moreover, over 100 additional Bible verses describe Yeshua as a man, and I have those references available upon request. Also, Yeshua is our example. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 22. First Peter 2, 21 through 22 says, For to this you were called, because Messiah also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Let's compare that to 1 John 2, 6. First John 2, 6 says, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. And so we see that he is our example, and thus we should walk. We should follow his example. We should walk just as he walked. And so he left a very important example for us because he modeled the way of life that is living for Yahweh. Not only is Yeshua our example in life, but also in death and the resurrection. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. But now Messiah is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Messiah all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Messiah the firstfruits, afterward those who are Messiahs at his coming. And so, as you can see here, Yeshua is our example all the way through life and death and resurrection. And he's called the first fruits, being the first resurrected from the dead to immortality. And after him, then those believers, those people of righteousness, are to follow in that, in the resurrection. What a great day that will be. That's the day that we should all be living for and hoping for. In addition, Yeshua is a man who has received a glorified body and immortality that we just talked about. 
Let's turn to Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, and read more about this. Philippians 3, 20 through 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Master Yeshua Messiah, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And so notice here that the righteous will also receive glorious bodies like the Messiah's and inherit immortality. Yeshua is also exalted to the right hand of Yahweh. Look at Acts chapter 5, verse 31. Acts 5.31, him, speaking of Yeshua, Yahweh has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. This verse calls Yeshua a prince. A prince is a son and is secondary in rank. The Bible never calls Yahweh a prince. Nevertheless, a prince is certainly a position of status, but once again, it's worshiping according to respective status. That's what we need to keep in mind. Somebody might ask, well, how does all this, how does all this affect your life? Well, I want to say that it affects your life very much because our worship to our Creator and then our honor to His Son is one of the most important things that we do in life. And so we've read about some of these different things. Yeshua is the Messiah. He's our mediator. He's our example. He's a man who has received a glorified body and immortality. He's exalted to the right hand of Yahweh. And so much more. The Bible describes Yeshua by these characteristics and so many more. We should not make Yeshua less than the Bible says he is, nor more than the Bible says he is. Our worship of him should follow accordingly. And I want to go on to address some verses in the Bible that at first glance um, might seem difficult to understand or might seem to say that Yeshua is Yahweh or that puts him in the position of being the Almighty. So, so let's examine some of those. Let's look at Jeremiah 23, verse 6. This is a prophecy of the Messiah's future kingdom role. And for added context, I want to also include verse 5. So Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, says Yahweh, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called. 
Yahweh our righteousness, or in the Hebrew, Yahweh Sidkenu. Some assert that this verse calls the Messiah Yahweh, but note that the text doesn't stop at Yahweh. It says, Yahweh our righteousness, or as I pointed out from the Hebrew text, Yahweh Sidkenu. Let's compare this to what Jeremiah also wrote in chapter 33, verse 16. Jeremiah 33, 16, it says, In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she, that is Jerusalem, will be called, Yahweh our righteousness. Same terminology from the Hebrew text, Yahweh Sid Canu. Now, obviously, the city of Jerusalem is not Yahweh, and neither is the Messiah. Instead, Yahweh our righteousness indicates the key roles that the Messiah and the capital city of Jerusalem will play in the kingdom age process of establishing Yahweh's righteousness on the earth. In this context, Yahweh our righteousness is what is known as an epithet. Now, some people may think that epithets are only bad things, but they're not. They can be, they can be bad or they can be good. But an epithet is a characterizing word or phrase accompanying or occurring in place of the name of a person or thing. And so this characterizing phrase, Yahweh our righteousness, describes the function of what the Messiah's role will be in the coming kingdom. It describes the function of what the city of Jerusalem, the capital city, will be doing in the coming kingdom, and that is establishing Yahweh's righteousness on earth. This is why both the Messiah and the city of Jerusalem can be called Yahweh our righteousness. It doesn't change either one of their proper names. Jerusalem is still Jerusalem. Yeshua is still Yeshua, but they can be called Yahweh our righteousness as an epithet or a descriptive term to describe their function. And a supporting passage for that is Psalm 83, 18. Psalm 83, 18 says, That they may know that you, whose name alone is Yahweh, are the most high over all the earth. So Yahweh occupies this position of most high over all the earth. And he is the only one with that personal name. That is his personal name, and he is the only one that has that name. Next, let's go to the book of John. We're going to look at a statement that Thomas made here in John 20, 28. John 20, 28. 
In the New King James Version quoted verbatim, it says, quote, and Thomas answered and said to him, that is speaking to Yeshua, said to him, my Lord and my God, unquote. So as written in our English translations, this verse seems to support the notion that Yeshua is the Almighty, that he is deity, that he is Elohim. What Thomas actually said was probably in either Hebrew or Aramaic. They weren't, Greek was not the language in those days in, in and around Jerusalem. And so what Thomas actually said was probably in Hebrew or Aramaic, and it was probably akin to my Adoni and my Elohim. Adoni meaning master, and Elohim in this context referring to a person in a position of authority, such as a judge. And to see that use of Elohim, we can look at Psalm 82, verses 1 through 8. And so context is key. Most of the time when we are using the word Elohim, we are referring to Yahweh. And in referring to Yahweh, Elohim is referring to the one deity. But Elohim is a, is a word that has wide usage. And as we're about to see in Psalm 82, it's used of people in positions of authority. Doesn't make them deity, but it just means that they have an elevated position of authority, such as a judge. So let's read Psalm 82, uh, verses one through eight. Elohim, this first, first Elohim does refer to Yahweh. Elohim stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the Elohim. And so here we have another word, Elohim. And we're gonna find out that this is the people in positions of authority. Verse two, how long will you do what unjustly? Judge. This is speaking of judges, people in positions of authority. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked, Selah? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said, you are Elohim, and all of you are children of the Most High. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O Elohim, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. And so as we read through this passage, we have to discern by the context which Elohim refers to Yahweh as we read through this, and which Elohim refers to people in positions of authority or judges. In particular, notice there in verses 6 and 7, where Yahweh said, he said, I said you are Elohim. In other words, he's acknowledging that he did put people in positions of authority, and all of you are children of the Most High. But then it goes on in verse 7 to say, but you shall die like men. This proves that these people that he were talking about were men. They were men in positions of authority, human beings. You shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. And by the way, not that I'll turn to it right now, but you might remember that when they accused Yeshua 
of making himself the Almighty, and his reply was he was the son of the Almighty, and he used this, he used uh, Psalm 82 6 in his defense, where Yahweh said, You are Elohim. So if Yahweh said that to people, it was perfectly permissible then for Yeshua to claim that he was the son of Yahweh, not Yahweh himself. And so going back now to John, chapter 20, verse 28, let's consider a little more about what Thomas said to Yeshua. So as I mentioned, Thomas wouldn't have been speaking Greek, and he probably said something akin to my Adoni and my Elohim, or my master and Elohim. And in this context, referring to Yeshua being in a position of authority over him, you know, Thomas was doubting. He, he didn't accept this idea that Yeshua had the position that he had. Uh, but then he came to this, he came to this realization he recognized Yeshua's sovereignty and authority, and thus Thomas expressed his newfound belief and commitment. And so, once again, Thomas, I think, basically referred to Yeshua as his master and his Elohim, referring to a person in position of authority, such as his judge. And this is, note that this is in verse 28 of chapter 20 of John's writing. Notice that only three verses later, only three verses later, John states his purpose for his writing. And that purpose is that we may believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, the son of Elohim, not that we may believe that Yeshua is Elohim. And so in just a very close matter of a few verses, this lends to clarification of the, of the meaning of what Thomas said. I'll read that verse 31 here right quick. But these are written that you may believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, the Son of Elohim, and that believing you may have life in His name. Plus, earlier in this chapter, in verse 17, Yeshua stated that He had the same Father and Elohim as we do. In verse 17, Yeshua said to her, that is to Mary, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my Elohim and your Elohim. So we've got these pointers uh, surrounding, uh, in this same chapter, surrounding Thomas's statement that that we need to use, as well as the other information, uh, to help determine the meaning of what Thomas said. Next, next, let's look at, uh, in the book of Acts, chapter 10, verses 25 through 26.
And in this passage, we're going to find that Cornelius attempted to worship Peter, and Peter refused this in his case. And we're going to look at why and, uh, and just examine this passage. So I want to begin by reading Acts chapter 10, verses 25 through 26. It says, As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. One of the things to realize is that prostration to a superior was common uh, in the East. And we even read some earlier, uh, you may recall how that Abraham uh, bowed to the sons of Heth. Um, and, but one of the things that we need to note about this is that Cornelius was a centurion, which is a Roman officer in command of a hundred men. And we can find that information in Acts chapter 10, verse 1. If you back up to verse 1, it says, there was a, a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, which is a Roman officer in command of a hundred men. Uh, excuse me, the verse itself actually says, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a, centur a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. There we go. Pardon me on that. The Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary says about this, about how that he fell down at his feet, to P uh, Peter's feet, and worshiped him. And once again, uh, Peter refused this gesture. But the, the uh, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary makes this comment. Quote, in the East, this way of showing respect was customary, customary not only to kings, but to others occupying a superior station. But among the Greeks and Romans, it was reserved for the gods. Peter, therefore, declines it as due to no mortal, unquote. And so, once again, this, these kinds of acts always have to be relative to a person's status. It, it can be overdone in some cases, um, and apparently in the case of what Cornelius was doing to Peter, it was overdone, and Peter would not accept it. But once again, in just reviewing, we do find that Abraham bowed to the sons of, of Heth in that situation. And we noted that the Hebrew word shakah is widely used to describe this type of act as bowing down. Joseph's, Joseph's brothers bowed and prostrated themselves before him. Moses bowed before his father-in-law. David bowed before King Saul. But again, I just want to make the point that all of this is within the context of worshiping according to status. 
And when it comes to the worship of Yeshua, his status is as the lamb who was slain. His status is to the several other things I talked about uh, of the positions that he holds. And so once again, I would just say, uh, let us worship Yahweh according to his status as the Almighty, and let us honor and respect and worship Yeshua according to his status as the Lamb who was slain, the Messiah, and the, and the many honorable positions he holds. And may Yahweh bless the remainder of your Sabbath day.